Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Professor Vera Gorbunova from Rochester University. We talked about DNA damage, SIRT6, transcriptomics, extracellular matrix aging, comparison of very divergent species with different lifespans, and of course, the topic of self-experimentation. Enjoy this episode of the VitaDAO Aging Science Podcast. Uh, it's great to see you today at the VitaDAO Podcast. Well, great to see you too. I think we won't run out of questions, so I have um, a lot prepared. So we will talk a little bit about DNA damage later, about transcriptomics, about extracellular matrix aging, and comparison of species, how they age. But before we do this, maybe just a few introductory questions for fun. So I'm wondering, would you describe yourself more as a pessimist or optimist about future progress in aging research? Well, I would love to describe myself as realist. <laughs> I don't want to go into any of the extremes, but I think the progress is happening. <laughs> and um, there is a lot of reason for optimism, but maybe, you know, maybe not immortality in the next 10 years, but definitely some significant improvement. I think it's really necessary with the demographics of the world, the way it's looking. Yes, absolutely. This is the way to go. Yeah, I expect um, eventually we may get more funding when people realize just how important aging research is. Yes, I think this process is happening. I, I'm really very excited to witness it, that people from you know both lay uh, audiences and, and scientists and politicians, they start to appreciate uh, that this is something that can be modified and improved, and uh, this is the source of health. Yeah, I was myself a little bit surprised how quickly VitaDAO is growing and how much people are interested in those grassroots anti-aging organizations. It's amazing. No, I, I like the concept very much. Uh, it is great that people can contribute to good causes and make a difference. I totally agree. Um, I do have another question, though. Would you say, so you, you studied so many different species, how long they live, why they live long. Did any of this affect how you live life yourself, uh, diet, supplements, any anything? Uh, well, I don't really stick to you know, a, a very extensive supplement regimen, uh, maybe because I'm a skeptic <laughs> when it comes to uh, taking, you know, these concrete measures. But I try to exercise. I eat a diet, you know, lots of vegetables and fruits uh, because there is a lot of data on the benefits of that. And, and also because I like them. <laughs> it makes me happy. Um, I eat a seaweed supplement because that's based on my own research and uh, also on just uh, observations of what people uh, eat in countries with uh, long life expectancies. 
Um, so this is these are pretty much you know things that I do myself. <laughs> uh, good good diet, uh, seaweed exercise. Um, it's pretty cool that you're taking a, a seaweed supplement. I guess we're inclined to take the supplements or the things that we study ourselves. So I study a little bit of broccoli and recently I'm considering starting a broccoli supplement. Yes, uh, I think that, um, you know, gives you some confidence. And then also it's something I know, at least with the seaweed and I would say broccoli too, we know this this is safe um, because with anti-aging supplements we have to be very careful the bar is quite high for safety it's not a cancer treatment here you don't want to take any risks uh, if you're already in good health uh, so yes and and in a sense for me it's also an experiment <laughs> i like the spirit of self-experimentation yeah scientists been doing it <laughs> through the years that's true and so regarding the seaweed, maybe we can talk about this. How did you come up with, the, with this idea? Was it from your comparative biogerontology studies or uh, what, what does it do and why are you taking seaweed? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, in a, it, it did come from uh, comparative uh, gerontology studies in a sense and also from my studies of uh, epigenetics and sirtuin 6. Uh, so sirtuin-6 is uh, one of sirtuin enzymes, uh, and this is actually one that affects lifespan the most from different sirtuins. If you have mice with mutation, they age prematurely, and overexpressing mice live longer, so that you know, quite an exciting gene to study. And we've been studying it for many years, um, and then when we analyzed it across different species with different lifespan. Uh, the findings were quite amazing that activity of sirtuin 6 correlated very strongly with maximum lifespan. Longer-lived species would have more active enzyme. So that convinced me uh, that it's a good idea to activate it. And then we also found a variant in human centenarians that had more active uh, six. So all of this together, we started testing different activators. And uh, there are some chemical activators and as with any new small molecules, you don't know what could be the side effects. So that's not something I would jump on taking. But um, in our assay, the most potent activator was uh, Fucoidin from seaweed. Uh, which was very exciting to me because uh, seaweed is consumed a lot in Asian countries such as Japan, South Korea. This is something people eat every day. So we know it is safe and it was such a strong activator in vitro that I thought, well, this is something <laughs> I feel good about taking. That's very interesting how it is linked to multiple kinds of work you did. So. Um, for those who don't know, comparative gerontology is like when we compare species of different lifespans. And I, re I really love this kind of research, so that's why I often read your papers. And I'm wondering what else did you learn by comparing species? So you looked at CERT-6 activity. Um, what else is different in long-lived species that you found? Well, yeah, this is a fascinating uh, approach to use because when you look at non-standard species or species that scientists don't often use, uh, you find new things. 
<laughs> so there are two ways to go about it. You can either test um, various processes that are kind of already known or suspected to play a role in longevity, or you can go for something completely new and you find uh, you find new things either way. So from those that are sort of more conserved and we would perhaps expect that it might correlate with lifespan, was DNA repair. So we found that longer-lived species are much better at repairing breaks in DNA, so particularly double-strand breaks. Uh, so the correlation was amazingly strong. And that's where CERT-6 study came from, because we started looking, okay, so why long-lived species repair DNA much better? What is it exactly they do better? And then it came to CERT-26 that it was more active. In addition to this study, uh, where we found the conserved mechanism, uh, we also looked at individual species, for example, naked mole rat, um, and analyzed, okay, what is different about naked mole rat? And this way you find things you often don't expect to find, and these may be more unique to that particular species. For example, in the naked mole rat, uh, we found, well, we found a lot of things, <laughs> uh, but one that uh, we published on uh, was hyaluronic acid, which is a component of extracellular matrix. Uh, and there is some hyaluronic acid in all vertebrates, but in the naked mole, there was a lot of it, particularly high quantities and also long lengths of the molecule. And then we found that it has many different beneficial properties and that, again, something that we could apply to people as well. And then we looked at other species, blind morad, a different rodent, but also lives for a very long time. Uh, we found a unique pathway of how they activate transposons to protect themselves from cancer. So lots of things. And naked morad, again, we studied naked morad a lot because of how unique this creature is. They live more than 40 years. Uh, and they're being you know, same size as a mouse. So that's quite amazing. So we found hyaluronic acid. We found that their protein translation is very accurate. And they have slightly different ribosome than everybody else. That allows them to make much better proteins. Um, and, you know, lots of other things. That's amazing. Let's start with the cancer and DNA damage story, because it's a really important one. So why is it specifically double-strand breaks that seem to correlate with species lifespan or double-strand break repair, do you think? Yeah, this is a very good question. Um, no, my thinking is that because uh, double-strand breaks um, probably are the lesions that are most disruptive, uh, not only to the cell, because, well, you imagine you break DNA, so you can lose like half a chromosome this way. Uh, while point mutations are very localized, they may not even have large impact. Yeah, so this is one explanation. And there is a lot of, for example, oxidative damage that happens on a daily basis. Uh, but maybe those repair systems are just too important because there, there is so much oxidation happening. You cannot really mess up with it. You need to maintain certain level of repairing oxidative damage. And there is not a lot of wiggle room. With double strand breaks, well, they are very lethal, but also there are not as many of them. 
<laughs> so that may be why we see with aging, this is seems to be most relevant. Uh, another potential reason is that double strand breaks are the lesions that are most disruptive to the epigenetic structure. Uh, and in recent years, we learn a lot about epigenome. So it's not only DNA sequence itself, but also how it packaged within the nucleus. And this is what gets uh, really messed up with age. And double strand breaks would really affect it because, well, you break it, uh, chromatin needs to be unwound around, and then it, once it joined back together, it's really difficult for the cell to exactly restore epigenetic uh, structure around double strand breaks. So if double strand breaks are not handled properly, that would um, accelerate epigenetic de deterioration. So that may be you know, why double strand break repair. So it seems they're simply more toxic than smaller lesions like point mutations. Yes. So the, there are, of course, you know, basic scission repairs, what repairs those smaller lesions. But we didn't see such a strong relationship. We also uh, measured a nucleotide excision repair, which um, is another type of repair that's kind of repairs smaller things, like cross-links within DNA oxidative, I mean, not oxidative, but UV lesions, like uh, dimers between nucleotides. And that type of repair didn't correlate as much with maximum lifespan. Uh, we found very strong correlation with sun exposure. So animals that live in the sun uh, would have much better repair, but those that are nocturnal or hide in burrows, they didn't have very strong nucleotide excision repair. Uh, but double strand break repair, yeah, that was very much linked to lifespan. So the repair of those lesions probably reduces cancer rates and long-lived species, and especially like also large species have low rates of cancer, right? And I find this extremely interesting because you would expect larger species to have more cancer, right? Due to Peter's paradox, which is um, yes. my second favorite paradox in longevity research. Yes, Peter's paradox is quite fascinating. Uh, right, so why those larger species don't get more cancer? And, um, you know, early on, we had a study of uh, telomerase activity across different rodents, where we initially expected to see relationship with maximum lifespan, but instead it was all about body mass. Uh, rodents that are larger, they would repress telomerase activity like humans, and that would provide them with a mechanism of senescence as a way to prevent growth of tumors. So there, the relationship to body mass was so strong. Uh, but then we were also interested, you know, because in rodents, you can get to almost human size with capybara. This is a South American rodent that can reach almost 60 kilograms. So they would have telomeres like human. And uh, another favorite was the beaver. Beaver can be very large, and they live maybe 20 years, probably longer than that. There are some anecdotal stories of beavers living for 40 years. So they were also very much like human in res with respect to tumor suppressors and telomeres. Uh, so we were, after that study was completed, uh, we were all very puzzled. What about you know animals that are even bigger than that? Because if you think about 
something really big like elephant or whale they must do something additional to what humans do uh, then there were a couple of studies published on the elephants showing that they evolved additional copies of p53 tumor suppressor and this is how they don't get cancer uh, so then we thought well this is interesting so it means more tumor suppressors like you increase your arsenal well we found replicative senescence is something appearing only in larger species now well more tumor suppressors but all of these mechanisms ultimately what they do they uh, either eliminate cells from division through senescence so they kill cells through apoptosis uh, which may not be the best strategy if you want to live for a long time you just run out of cells so then when we started looking at this animal that is really large it was the whale <laughs> very interesting we didn't find the whale to be using those mechanisms instead we found very good DNA repair <laughs> so that was quite an interesting observation because in the whale perhaps they optimize both um, you know not to get cancer uh, despite their enormous size and they also live for a very long time so if you want to achieve both ends perhaps DNA improved DNA repair is the way to go not killing cells so I noticed so different species might employ different mechanisms and I think that's a big struggle in comparative uh, gerontology when, when you compare species but I noticed you kind of have a little work around for that I don't know if that's the reason but you often study like rodent species of different lifespans what's the advantage of doing this instead of just doing all mammals yeah so the advantage is that rodents are still coming from you know, more or less the one evolutionary group. It's a very diverse group, but still they're more similar to each other and they have diversity of lifespans. Uh, so this allows to identify um, mechanisms that are more linked to lifespan rather than to just having very different physiology. Uh, lately, we started looking at why the range of species so we included bats um, into what we study uh, whale obviously and you know i'm still you know next couple of studies would show us which way is the most productive because focusing on rodents was very productive we found lots of new things um, and now we published a large transcriptomic study where we included several other species and you know, we made some very interesting findings. We are working you know, on other new omics projects where we look at a um, wider range of species, but then we can always also narrow down with just rodents. So we're actually now in the process of comparing which way we find more interesting pathways uh, so it may turn out that sometimes you want to limit to rodents or sometimes you want to also a wider array of species. Maybe you find you know, different ways. We will see. I'm curious myself, what's the better approach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, ideally what everyone would want to have is uh, species that are very close, but one lives short and the other lives long. But of course... It doesn't really happen this way. There would be some differences. And, and this is why, yeah, we're kind of trying to stay well. Let's look at things that are not 
too dramatically different because, yeah, of course, we can compare a mouse to a clam, uh, which would be more complicated because they're just so different. <laughs> but mouse to naked more, it is already a little bit better, but still they're quite different. So, so sometimes, you know, maybe having more of a continuum of related species with different lifespans may give you more power. So you're doing all kinds of omics, right? I saw you did single cell whole genome sequencing to measure mutation rates. That's also something very unusual. Yes, yes. So that was a collaboration with Jan Weick Lab. You know, I'm very interested in mutation accumulations because, well, DNA repair is the mechanism for it, but then you also want to see the outcome and actually measure mutations. Um, and when you want to measure somatic mutations, that's where single cell approaches become very important because you cannot look at those rare events just by looking at the bulk of cells. So there are lots of different new technologies that are being developed and um, we want to apply all of them <laughs> to our species with different lifespans. That was a beautiful paper. So um, the single cell whole genome sequencing. So if I recall correctly, you showed that shorter lived rodents have higher um, mutation rates after a stressor, right? And the thing that strikes me was that how much worse mice were compared to the other species. Did this surprise you? Yes, yes. That, that's a very good observation from that paper. You know, it, it's something that we actually get consistently that was with the mutation story. And also when we measured efficiency of DNA repair, the mouse was always the worst, the sloppiest. Yeah. And yeah, it is surprising in a way, like why is mouse so different? Even the rat is not as bad. The rat uh, kind of, you know, falls in line with other species, but mouse is always so much worse. Uh, so maybe for the mouse, that was the evolutionary strategy just, you know, not care about DNA repair or protestasis or anything. They are optimized to grow up very quickly, to start breeding very young. And that's, you know, then probably at that point they get eaten in the wild. So this is the life strategy. Um, but also in a sense, it, you know, tells us that since mouse is the, you know, most widely used mammalian model organism uh, that, well, they are very different <laughs> from other mammals. So this is just a word of caution. Uh, it's very convenient to use mice. And when we compare mice to pretty much any other animal, the mice would be much worse with respect to mechanisms that matter for lifespan. Uh, so it may be very you know, easier to improve mouse lifespan than it is to <laughs> improve lifespan of human. So we have to really perhaps, you know, for me, it's additional motivation to study other species. Because if we only look for whatever improves mouse lifespan, probably more than half of that will be useless for humans. Um, so it's best to look whatever longevity mechanism we can find in the whale, for example, then we'll test it on a mouse improves mouse lifespan, then yes, good. So that's a, a good reason to continue with it. But if something really was only found in the mouse, <laughs> I would say, well, we don't know whether it will work in human. And I remember I 
was talking to Peter Fedichev not long ago, and that was one of the takeaways for me as well, that mice are very fragile as a model and they're just very not robust, right? And Yes, exactly. They are fragile. They are, it's, um, I mean, in a sense, you know, the word fragile, they, they're actually quite robust in some ways. You can, you know, they proliferate, they breed so robustly. <laughs> but in terms of like individual survival, yes, they are fragile. Also with all sorts of toxicology studies, it's very easy to poison a mouse, right? For humans, it would take much longer time. So that's why also some studies, you know, testing toxins on mice that actually mouse may be a good model because of the sensitivity of this model. Uh, but yeah, if we want to study mechanisms of long life, then yeah, we have to look elsewhere. <laughs> I like the way you were describing the mouse as like being slightly sloppy regarding DNA repair. So it kind of sacrificed the fidelity for the ability to reproduce quickly, right? Yes, yes. So that's why you do comparative biogerontology, right? So you look at different species and when you did transcriptomics, this huge paper, you had how many different rodent species? I think that was about 30. And we didn't include bats in this study because we just didn't have the data at the time we've done the analysis, but we included some uh, smaller um, uh, creatures like shrews and moles that are not rodents uh, that we didn't have in other studies. But now we are doing a proteomic study where we will have even more species. So we'll see this actually the study we are, we are trying to do just rodents or we have uh, everything else uh, on the planet, like deer and carnivores, <laughs> cows, sheep. <laughs> so I think you briefly mentioned some results from the study. Maybe uh, you can talk more about the things you found in this transcriptomic analysis. Yeah, that was a very exciting, actually. Uh, we found some things that were maybe more expected. Uh, so first we looked at the genes and pathways that correlate either negatively or positively with longevity across species. Again, not talking about age, uh, because all animals were young adults in this study, but we were looking for whatever correlates with uh, how long these species live. Uh, so from more expected findings, uh, we found that various metabolic processes were negatively related to maximum lifespan, which kind of is an old idea that very fast pace of life, fast metabolism generally is negatively associated with uh, lifespan. Uh, and then we found various genes related to inflammation to be negatively associated with lifespan. So those shorter-lived creatures, they're kind of more inflamed. Uh, in particular, the DNA sensing pathway, so this whatever in induces interference, was negatively associated. And it's interesting, that study did not include bats, uh, but people working with bats, they found that it, they're just really missing some of these components of the DNA sensing pathways. So that was sort of additional confirmation. We didn't use bats, but other species follow the same rule. If you are long-lived, you try to down-regulate those pathways. 
So these were negative genes. So from the positive, we found DNA repair to be very positively associated with lifespan and especially double strand break repair, which confirmed our previous findings, but this time in a more unbiased way because we just looked at all transcripts within focus on repair pathways, but it still came up. Uh, then there were a couple of things we still don't know how to explain. There were uh, pathways related to microtubules and pathways related to RNA transport uh, were positively associated with lifespan, and we don't quite know <laughs> what, what are the important factors there, so that's something uh, for future studies. And then finally, we've done additional analysis that hasn't been done before on um, such type of data set. So we looked at uh, what kind of transcriptional factors regulate those positive or negative genes. So to look sort of at the level of regulation, whatever controls this. Uh, and th that was actually a very surprising result. So we found that genes that are negatively associated with lifespan are controlled by circadian clock. And here I'm talking primarily about metabolic genes, uh, which means, yes, you don't want to have very high metabolism um, because that may be bad, but also maybe you want to restrict it to a certain time of day, and then it minimizes the bad impact. So yeah, you need to metabolize, but okay, let's keep it, for example, for the daytime and you know, not the nighttime. So that was quite interesting. And then for the positive genes, uh, we found that they are controlled by pluripotency network. So the same pluripotency transcription factors that in development have this potential to rejuvenate to you know, the cell developing organism. Uh, but they also seem to be working in adult organism and then control these genes that are important for longevity. So that was very unexpected finding. And it also, and I, it also echoed uh, studies on reprogramming, which is very hot topic now in aging research where you can take these factors and rejuvenate uh, animals epigenetically. And before I was looking at it as more like an engineering fit that may not be really linked to what happens normally uh, in vivo. But from this finding, we concluded that, well, evolution also chose the same strategy. If you want to evolve a longer-lived organism, you upregulate this net, the same network. Yeah, I was quite a comprehensive paper. I also saw you tested whether different lifespan extending treatments in mice activate those same pathways, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so based on yeah, these signatures of short-lived and long-lived, we could then see whether interventions um, apply to mice that extend lifespan if they change it in the same direction. Uh, and here it was interesting, for example, rapamycin was really meeting both criteria that it would downregulate negative genes and upregulate positive genes. But there were some other interventions that only partially were changing mouse transcriptome in the same direction, but they were also, you know, doing some of the negative things. <laughs> uh, so that was um, interesting to 
look at interventions like that because that would mean that, yeah, in the mouse, we know, well, that there is an observation that particular intervention works. Uh, but if it doesn't work entirely in sync with evolutionary process, then it probably tells us that we don't know for sure if it will work the same in other species. <laughs> so this may be you know, just one way of uh, screening interventions. That analysis was very interesting. I think caloric restriction, methionine restriction did not look as good as rapamycin, although they both That's extend right. lifespan, right? It's a mystery. Yeah, well, I think with caloric restriction, uh, we know that it works very well in some mouse strains. Uh, there are some strains where it doesn't work. And in humans, uh, yeah, well, there are benefits, but I don't think they are as dramatic as in mice. And that may be also the reason why, because caloric restriction, um, you know, for the mouse, that may be the way to go because of their very high metabolism. You just slow them down a little bit and it has huge impact. Uh, humans are not as fast as mice. So for us, maybe the impact is lower. And also it does perhaps bring some have some negative effects too so for human those may be more of a concern than for the mouse indeed caloric restriction is not as robust as we once thought that's like a new finding and i i have some questions about some of the other factors of pathways that were associated with lifespan mm -hmm. so some of them were very interesting i was looking at the pathways that have a negative association with max lifespan and one of them seemed to be collagen related. Do you have any speculation why? Like there was, it was quite pronounced when I was looking at it. It's... Yeah, well, collagens are complicated. Yeah, people tend to think, oh, well, this is just matrix, but, but there is a lot in there. There are different types of collagens. Uh, so I'm not really an expert in collagens. <laughs> uh, so I, I perhaps won't be able to give you a very good, precise explanation here, but we see different collagens, for example, some associated more with regenerative processes, some are less. Um, collagens also work together with uh, hyaluronic acids. Um, and sometimes like in the naked morad, for example, we see more hyaluronic acid, but there may be a little bit less of collagen. So I think that there is quite a complex balance of different types of collagens, other components of extracellular matrix that may have profound effect on longevity. But it's not to say, oh, we'll just get rid of collagen. <laughs> Perhaps, you know, there may be some fine tuning here. So could this be related to maybe reduced fibrosis, age-related fibrosis in those species? Does this make sense? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, like in the naked morat, we... I uh, have some data where we try to look at uh, wound healing and we see that they can heal wounds without fibrosis. So that may be, you know, one way of, if you minimize, you know, this collagen formation, the fibrotic plug, um, so you get more robust type of repair, more durable, although it takes a little bit longer for them to heal. So again, for short-lived species, maybe making a fibrotic lesion is sort of an easy, <laughs> quick and easy patch, um, but it's not as uh, good of a repair on the long term. So yeah, you're ex uh, exactly right. Fibrosis may be 
part of the explanation uh, because in humans this is a very big problem and there aren't really very good solutions for it right now. So maybe, yes, longer-lived species, you would expect them to deal with this better. A lot of cool findings from this paper. So the DNA damage repair stands out to me because we've seen this a lot in your work with the SIRT6 and the reduced rates of DNA damage in long-lived species. So I think that's a common theme in, mm -hmm. in long-lived species, right? And about the RNA export, um, I have no idea why that would be happening, but I was just reminded I was talking to Alatin Kaya, who was like screening yeast of different lifespan, and he mentioned something about RNA quality control at least being different. So it's something pretty interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Maybe I need to talk to him. <laughs> Maybe we can find an explanation why RNA transport. Hopefully, like if two people work together, it's better than one. Yeah, thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, that's something quite interesting. We want to understand what it is. You know, very often when you work with long-lived species, um, you know, like especially if, you know, not just doing omics, but you want to find, you know, what's causal, uh, there is this difficult period where you're just trying to find some clues that to pursue them because, well, you have an animal. You know it lives for a long time, and now what? How do you, <laughs> how do you get at it? Uh, so there is this very fascinating discovery period where you can just take these animals or their cells and and poke around to find anything that's relevant. But once and then always something comes up. Um, so here with this RNA, right? We just have to take it and try to poke around, try different things. <laughs> I have uh, one last brief technical question about the transcriptomics work. Mm -hmm. So the strategy here is generally you group genes into functional groups or they're somehow related, right? But are you ever worried that the groups are not good because the annotations are not good and maybe they're misplaced? Do you ever have issues with this or? Yeah, well, that is important question. Yeah, because we, for functional enrichment, yeah, we look for these terms um, that were already preformed of different pathways, and and they are not perfect. Um, so we have to be a little bit, um, you know, critical of what we see because you can see certain pathway and that may, you know, mean something quite opposite. So we are trying to interpret it, not literally, but to just say, okay, well, if there is a signal from certain pathways, then let's look deeper. Uh, what exactly, what are the genes? Where do they fall? And then use it not as absolute, you know, conclusion, but just as a guidance to where to go. And sometimes we can form our own uh, categories based on what we know. Actually, maybe I will have another last question about the transcriptomics. So I recall in 2015, the Gladyshev lab also did the transcriptomic study across different species. And they also found changes in DNA repair, but they also saw like kind of improved heme management, heme metabolism. Did you see anything resembling that heme or iron? Well, I don't recall right now, but maybe, maybe if we dig deeper, <laughs> we see it. Um, it, it's also very often that uh, with these kind of studies, um, there is different level of sensitivity 
that you can set up for your comparisons. And if something is very robust, it would come up regardless, like DNA repair. But then there are other pathways that really, depending on how you set your threshold, you either see it or not. Great. That sounds good. So we were talking about collagen before, but maybe now we can talk about hyaluronic acid. Like, what is it? What is it good for? Hyaluronic acid is um, polysaccharide, glucosaminoglycan, uh, and it is a linear sugar molecule. It can be very long, uh, and it is yeah, it is very good for us <laughs> because it's part of uh, many of um, connective tissues. Uh, it's uh, everywhere in human body. You can find in the joints, in blood vessels, uh, in the eyes. Um, so it's really what connects cells together, together with collagen. Uh, and uh, our big surprise with naked morad work was that all of a sudden we find that in the naked morad there is uh, like ten times more hyaluronic acid. It's something we didn't expect. Uh, was completely serendipitous finding. We were just like poking around to see what's different about naked mora than we find hyaluronic acid. Um, so that really brought me to the studies of extracellular matrix, which wasn't something I studied before, but we had to learn about it. And in the naked mora, what we find that they have a lot of hyaluronic acid and also the length of these linear chains is almost 10 times longer. And as a result, it changes the cell behavior. And uh, in particular, uh, it is very protective against metastasis and uh, tumor growth in general. Uh, but it also has other benefits. For example, it has anti-inflammatory effect on immune cells. So there are all sorts of benefits from this hyaluronic acid. And then... Um, uh, interestingly, it's something that human evolution didn't bring up. So our hyaluronic acid is very modest. Uh, well, we have it, but it's short and not very much. Uh, so our evolutionary path, even though we are very long-lived, but it didn't uh, optimize hyaluronic acid side. And this is why that's potentially an area for improvement in human biology. And what could it do if we had better hyaluronic acid? Well, it could protect us from cancer, especially from metastasis, because uh, metastasis, it means cells kind of fall out of place and start traveling around the body. Um, and hyaluronic acid is what it creates a mesh that keeps uh, tissues together, and it has anti-proliferative uh, effect on the cells and also it slows down cell migration. Uh, so this is something that can be anti-metastatic. Does that mean I could just eat it in a pill or would I have to, I don't know, inject it? Yeah, so this is now more complicated, right? So there are pills, they're probably very safe, uh, but whether they would have the same effect is not very clear. Uh, most likely not because it's such a large molecule. And um, if we take it orally, so it would most likely be broken down in, in our intestine. There are still some studies showing association between hyaluronic acid um, you know, intake um, and uh, there is some effect on the joints that beneficial even showing 
increased levels of hyaluronic acid. I don't know exactly how to explain it. It could be that maybe if you eat the precursor, it may help the body to make its own, but I would doubt that it can be directly absorbed being such a large molecule. Um, but what we are looking right now at ways to uh, slow down degradation of hyaluronic acid. So this way um, we can take those inhibitory molecules that would be a small molecule inhibitor and uh, just s slow down the turnover of what our cells already make. And, and that may be the way, because injections is another way. Uh, but with injections, again, it is a very large molecule. So wherever you inject it, it will stay there. It will not you know, affect other parts of the body. And people use injections in some applications already, like cosmetics or for joints. So somewhere where you want it to be very local. Uh, but for longevity or anti-cancer effect, you obviously want it everywhere. Uh, so maybe inhibiting degradation is the best strategy. It definitely sounds like there would be a market either for injections of beta hyaluronic acid or those inhibitors. It sounds like something that could be commercialized. So if you want uh, to talk to Vita Dow, they're always interested in funding medium-sized projects with commercial appeal. Well, you know, it, it, <laughs> we actually have a project with them. Yes, yeah, so they, you are exactly right. Uh, they were very interested in, they formed the Matrix Bio. Uh, biotech. Uh, so we are in these initial stages right now and um, gearing up uh, to make a larger screen for the inhibitors. So I hope this will be progressing. There was a little bit of a lag, which I thought was related to financial <laughs> markets, uh, but I'm hoping that we'll get working on this very soon. That's pretty cool. I'm not aware of the whole pipeline. It's good to hear that you already have something going on. Yeah, so it's the name is Matrix Bio. Nice. And so yeah, about the extracellular matrix aging and, and hyaluronic acid, I think it's a really neglected field. Um, people have not been doing that much about extracellular matrix and aging. So I love that you're working on on this. And Maybe we can briefly discuss anything new that you're working on. You mentioned proteomics, um, cross-species proteomics comparisons. How is that going? Yeah, so this is work in progress, so I cannot go into a lot of details on it, but uh, we are trying to apply the same uh, strategies of analyzing um, proteins and pathways that correlate with lifespan. Uh, proteomics is... Um, a different beast than transcriptomics because, well, you have to use a different methodology like mass spectrometry. Uh, you may be more limited as to what you see because the detection methods are different, so you see more abundant proteins only. You cannot see very rare uh, proteins. And of course, there is a lot of, you know, computational tools that need to be used because you need to assemble those proteins. Uh, but it, it's looking very interesting. And then ultimately what we want to do is to integrate these findings with transcriptomic and metabolomic findings. So we're also doing metabolomics on all of these same samples. 
Um, because it's interesting that there are, you know, these different levels. You can look transcripts, proteins, metabolites. Uh, and very often transcripts, you know, you can see links to various longevity pathways, but sometimes it is quite removed because from the transcript, there's all these levels of regulations that could be regulated the, the level of protein synthesis, modifications. So by the time you get down to the phenotype, already only a small part would be explained by the transcriptomic result. You go to proteins, now you're kind of close already to the phenotype. And then from metabolites, it's even closer to phenotype. So we expect to find something interesting as we you know, progress along these lines. So that's exciting. And with metabolites, uh, if we find something that correlates strongly to maximum lifespan, then it's something we can potentially use right away in the interventions because you can take those molecules. That's an amazing project. I've been saying for years that we really need to do proteomics of aging to compare different species, but I guess it's technically challenging. Yeah, well, you were right. Um, it's something that you know we are, I'm very excited about, but yeah, there are technical challenges, both computationally and, and practically, just collecting all of those proteins, uh, tissues in a good way. But right now, the, we have the tools to do it. Um, of course, for human proteomics, there are all these new approaches that don't use mass spectrometry, but uh, you know, design like optomers, uh, and this allows greater sensitivity of the analysis. But we cannot do it cross species because, you know, in each species a protein would be a little different, so you cannot apply the same tools. We have to use mass spectrometry. But you know, still, let's see what we find. Yeah. And Although about metabolomics, I'm not sure I would 100% agree that it's so amazing since you may, well, you will only find what has changed in a steady state, right? So you might miss all the cool things that happen under stress or under the flux changes, right? So it might be difficult, but still a great idea. Yeah, of course, there are limitations with metabolites because the, this is such a sensitive endpoint, right? So whatever you captured, uh, this is what you see. So um, we will, of course, miss um, whatever happens in flux and we didn't harvest all of these specimens at exactly the same condition. <clears throat> but my hope is that still we'll, <laughs> we'll have something interesting and we're already getting some signals that are quite interesting but it's more difficult to interpret metabolomics data too i'm looking forward to those studies and thanks for the conversation we talked a lot about the science um about your papers and your publications and maybe i can just ask you a couple of brief questions more about i don't know philosophy sociology um or like fun questions at the end okay so, one would be, well, you don't have to answer, like if you could choose to live healthy for a long life, how long would you like to live? <laughs> That's a very difficult question. I think I would choose to live as long as I'm enjoying it. And right now I don't know if there will be time when I stop and <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's very difficult to set a limit for yourself. Well, as long as 
And I think that's what we would want for every person, that they, people can live as long as they're happy with that. That we could really have a say <laughs> if you want to live longer, live longer. It seems like a matter of fairness, yeah. Okay, another thing. Um, what do you think is one of the biggest challenges fa facing aging research? Well, you know, there are probably many challenges. I think this is a very difficult area to research. Uh, the progress is slow. It's not as fast as in engineering because humans have been very successful at inventing different technologies and the progress is fast. Uh, so there was a lot of investment and commercial interest in technologies. Uh, with aging and other biological processes, um, often people get uh, investors become uh, lose their motivation once they see how slow that is. Um, because here we're trying to understand and modulate biological process that's so complex. Uh, so it doesn't come just... Uh, so this is, I think, the biggest challenge for people to understand that uh, biological progress is slow. And, and nevertheless, it's so important if we not only want to like make new iPhones, but we also want to improve human health. Um, we have to invest a lot in it and be patient. And this is the biggest challenge, just explaining it to people, because often, especially people who come from... Uh, uh, fields of uh, computer science technologies, they, they are impatient. They think, like, why? You know, still no way to solve it. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's different. It's true. People from the technology field think differently. Um, talking about technology, have you recently played around with GPT-4 or considered, like, any implications for future research? I think it is very powerful. Yes, of course, I played and I asked uh, questions. <laughs> uh, AI is very powerful. Uh, so I see a huge potential here, especially as we accumulate a lot of data. And uh, there are, you know, these huge data sets, like, for example, UK Biobank, uh, that is still not completely mined. We still, for example, don't even know answers to such trivial questions, okay, like, which diet is the best, you know, in terms of like evidence based? Because people make all kinds of recommendations. Oh, you need to eat this. Is there enough evidence? And here we have these data sets where we can look at like a lot of information from many people, from many of whom there are health histories that are very good and we know how long they lived. So I think there is a huge potential in exploring that. I totally agree. And it's it's a good closing remark. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming. Well, pleasure talking to you too. Thanks for the work that you do. All right. This was a great podcast. Three brief points. I really like the kind of research that Vera is doing. She takes a very holistic approach. So she looks at the whole pipeline, so to say. The whole pipeline for a drug or compound, cell studies, comparative gerontology, work with very old people like centenarians studying their genetics, and even preclinical work and work leading up to starting a company. This is very much the kind of research I aspire to do as well. Well, 
Focus on one area is great. Having so much broad knowledge is also amazing. Second point, just very briefly, I want to remind everyone that we have to be very careful not to fool yourself because you are the easiest person to fool, to paraphrase Richard Feynman. So when we run studies that have many potential outcomes, as is usually the case with omics studies like RNA sequencing, gene expression studies, etc., etc., it is very easy to pick up things consistent with your theory and disregard everything else. This can lead to bias. And I don't think there's an easy solution to this problem. And I really do love comparative aging research and especially comparative transcriptomics using RNA sequencing as we discussed during the podcast. But sometimes I start to wonder how solid is the data supporting one theory of aging in one study if another similar study implicates another theory. So how important is the absence of evidence compared to evidence in favor of a theory? This is just a question that was on my mind. And the third point is, I was always a bit skeptical about the importance of metabolomics in aging research, and I mentioned this when I talked to Vera. It always seemed to me like we never really found any amazing metabolites that would enable some kind of breakthrough. Like what important metabolite drives caloric restriction benefits outside of things we can measure in traditional blood chemistry like glucose, insulin, lipids, etc. We have nothing, at least nothing validated. I was very disappointed. But just recently, a team led by Vijay Yadav published a beautiful study on the longevity benefits of taurin. I was very impressed with his work. And then I noticed that this was actually based on the metabolomics screen, a longitudinal study, where they found taurin as a candidate. So here I am, proven wrong. Perhaps metabolomics is great after all. I wish all the best to Vera running her next metabolomics screen. And thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next podcast.